Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Body Justice. I started this podcast because I believe that all bodies are good bodies. All bodies are deserving, worthy, and all bodies are whole, just as they are. In today's world, it's ever hard to embody this as our truth. My mission is to create a space to process body image, eating disorders, and relationships through a justice-oriented lens. I'm a licensed therapist in California and an eating disorder survivor myself. I know what it's like to be at war with myself and also to find peace again. Thank you for being here and I look forward to being your host. Welcome back to Body Justice and happy National Eating Disorders Awareness Week. This is a week that, as a field, we dedicate to raising awareness about just how devastating eating disorders are, how serious they are, and treatment options, and what it entails to recover from an eating disorder. So if you follow me on Instagram at bodyjustice.therapist, you will definitely see all the awareness and raising that has been taking place this week and from a lot of my wonderful colleagues as well. Um, So I'd love to connect with you over there. Go ahead and follow me if you haven't already. Today, I'm so excited to talk with a wonderful colleague of mine, Summer Forlenza. She's an eating disorder and PTSD specialist. Um, And we're gonna talk today about how to feel safe in your body and how recovering from both an eating disorder and complex PTSD really has so much nuance and just kind of the ups and downs of that process. Summer is super skilled in this area and I'm so excited to share her wisdom with you all. So a little bit about Summer. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist here in California. She helps adults build better relationships with their body, brain, food, and more. She specializes in the treatment of eating disorders, PTSD, and complex PTSD. She's a former teacher, and she's passionate about providing accurate and helpful mental health education to others, um, as well as clinicians, educators, and of course, her clients. She identifies as a total nervous system nerd, which I love. (laughs) Um, If you want to learn more about her work, definitely follow her on Instagram as well, at summer.the.therapist, or check out her website, www.summerforlenza.com. All this will be linked in the show notes. Um, but let's get into my discussion with her because you really need to hear her insights and we're going to talk about tangible tools to find safety in your body right now. So any trauma survivors out there and just, you know, even if you don't identify as someone who's had a significant traumatic experience, you might be surprised to find out that um, trauma entails a lot more than what we think. Um, And just having an eating disorder, going through the eating disorder recovery experience can be very traumatic. You know, eating disorder behaviors are a trauma to our body. So definitely give this a listen and let me know what you think by leaving us a review on Apple. I would really appreciate that. really helps the podcast get out to more folks that need to hear these messages. Without further ado, let's talk with Summer. Summer, can you tell listeners a little bit about you, how you identify, and what you are passionate about? 
Sure. So my name is Summer Forlenza. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in California. I have a virtual private practice here. So I see clients from all over the state. Um, I'm really passionate about introducing more people to somatic therapy, especially when it comes to healing trauma and from eating disorders and empowering people to heal and break cycles that they might have been instilled in them by their family. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. I love that you emphasize the somatic pro- approaches because um, I think it's so crucial in eating disorder recovery to learn mm-hmm. how to feel safer in our bodies. Mm-hmm. Or we can get to a place of like treating it with care and respect. We have to feel safe, right? And I think that's hundred enough. I agree, you know, and I think sometimes we stick to just like what when people talk about eating disorders, we talk about body image concerns, we talk about our thoughts about ourselves and about food. And I find that the clients I've worked with anyway have really experienced a big shift when they're able to understand what's happening like below the neck. That's what I would say. I'm like, what's happening below your neck, you know? Um, Because then you can start to tell, oh, I'm feeling angry, I'm feeling worried, I'm feeling afraid like early. And a lot of times, like it's the emotions that are influencing the behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we figure out what's happening in our body, we can just start to intervene and understand so much earlier, you know? I totally agree. I love that. Um, tell me how you got interested in working with eating disorders and trauma. Sure. So it's, um, so before I was a therapist, I was a teacher and <laughs> I taught fifth grade in East Harlem in New York City. And a lot of my students had a lot of trauma, but I wouldn't necessarily have known that word and like how to describe it at the time. Um, And I remember being, I mean, I just had no idea what I was doing in terms of mental health at that point. I had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) And I remember those kids, you know, they would have a lot of things were going on in their lives. And we had a few social workers on our campus. um, And when my kids would go to see them, they would come back and feel better. And it just Mm -hmm. like seemed like magic to me. I was like, how are you doing that? I have no idea how to do what you just did. So I started to talk to the social workers and learn a little bit more about their work. And it really introduced me to the world of of mental health and real, it made me realize, oh, this is what I could do for work. And like, this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I started to dive in and understand more about trauma. And I have my own history with like, se- you know, severe chronic illness that has left its own mark on me. Mm-hmm. And so starting to understand what was happening in my body and in my brain, as I was putting all these pieces together, I just knew, okay, trauma is what I need to specialize in. It's what I need to do. Mm-hmm. So then I went to graduate school and had that in mind and got EMDR trained and was like, I'm ready to do that immediately. And then I remember some of my professors, they would tell when they were speaking about, you know, their work and stuff, they, one of the things you talk about is like, how do you know what clients you're good to serve and who you need to refer out? Right. Mm-hmm. And they would say, oh, the ones I refer out, I always refer out eating disorders. Oh, I don't, I, they would say stuff like, oh, I don't touch those with an eight foot pole and, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that. They were so, um, intimidated by the eating disorders and like, oh, it's so intense. And that really piqued my interest. I was like, well, what's going on there? Like, what's that sounds like a challenge. (laughs) What? You know, let me learn more. Um, And as I started to learn more, I started to see just in the same way as when I started to learn more about trauma, I saw so much of that in my own experiences. I started to see, oh, there's a lot of disordered eating, if not, you know, full on eating disorders in my own family and seeing these different family members and recognizing their struggles with that. Um, And I just realized, oh, this has been so normalized for me growing up that I didn't even realize that this is disordered, you Mm -hmm. know? And I think a lot of us who do this work have those moments where you're like, light bulb goes off and you're like, oh my God, like I thought that was okay to eat this way or to exercise this way or whatever. Um, 
so those interests and passions just all really came together in eating disorder work. Um, you know, wanting to break cycles in families, wanting to work with trauma. Um, so then I started when I was doing my internship hours, you know, we have to do all these associate hours, mm -hmm. it takes forever. Um, and I did a big chunk of them in eating disorder treatments at a mm -hmm. PHP, IOP and residential level of care. So folks who are not just seeing a therapist once a week, but coming in really regularly for that, you know, meal support and stuff like that. Um, and I just loved it. And I loved my colleagues and I loved the clients I worked with. And it just made me realize like, oh, this is like where I need to be. You know, mm -hmm. this is what I need to do. Wow, that's wonderful. It sounds like a lot of passion and just really big desire to help people, help people mm. heal and feel safe. Um, and I really love hearing that like you you got introduced to the field of eating disorders kind of in grad school um, and then through this idea of like, oh, it's hard to all these people. Let me go figure this out. And yeah. Falling in love with the people you served. Yes, um, that's oh, perfectly put, right? Because I'm a very curious person and I always am looking for knowledge and I'm reading and I'm, you know, I, if, you know, if any of y'all follow me on Instagram, I'm like always like, oh, look about this, look about this. And um, so, that I when I'm curious, I just go down a rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. And it's like you said, I went down this rabbit hole, got so curious. And then the people that I met that I got to work with, I was just like, oh my God, like I never want to not work with people like this. Mm -hmm. I want this to be who I'm with like all the time. I agree. Some of the most beautiful, wonderful souls I've met. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. And it's totally for that curious mindset of yours. I have it too. Um mm. it's it's about food and body, but it's not, right? So it's mm -hmm. like, this big metaphor that it feels like this mystery we get to help people solve and find a better way to live their lives. Yes, and I love the mystery of it. And the, you know, every person I've ever worked with, with any sort of disordered relationship with food and their body has a different experience and I take a different approach and different things yeah. work to help them heal. And yeah. that is so exciting to me. Like, I never know what I'm gonna get. I never know what my day is gonna be like. Um, and I'm a person who needs that. <laughs> I like, cannot do the same thing every day. And sometimes I'll kind of joke. I'm like, well, you know, working with eating disorders is never boring. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Very true. And once we get past the stabilization part is when mm -hmm. the really fun part comes up where we get to yes. look at what's driving it. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm assuming that for you, you've seen a lot of trauma and complex trauma under the eating disorder. Yes. Uh, just so much of that. Um, yeah. How do you think the two relate? Like what's yeah what's the connection there good question um so when, so let me just like talk about what complex trauma is first yeah. and just so that we're everybody's on the same page about what we mean when we say that so when we're talking about trauma a lot of times folks think about ptsd right and most people who aren't mental health land will think of ptsd as something that veterans have right so you go to war and you come back and you have shell shock, you have PTSD. And what it seems like perhaps is getting understood a little bit more by people now, um, though perhaps that's just me in my bubble thinking that, is that <laughs> PTSD can happen after all kinds of different traumatic events, accidents, illness, acts of violence, crime, um, you know, natural disasters, stuff like that. Um, and what happens when you have a trauma, um, and what happens when you have PTSD specifically, is that your, the memory that of what happened gets stored in the brain as if it's happening currently right now, right? Mm -hmm. So most of the memories that, you know, this memory of you and I, us, our conversation we're having right now, tonight we'll go to bed and we'll dream and our brain will process and put it all away as like, this happened in the past, mm -hmm. um, which is good. 
if a really traumatic thing happens to you where you feel overwhelmed or you feel helpless and trapped, you cannot engage in your fight or flight response. You have to go to the freeze response. That is when that memory gets really stuck because while the event is happening, your body is flooded with cortisol, your amygdala is all lit up in your brain. That's our fear center of our brain. Um, and your brain can't process what's happening. It's too much. Yeah. And so it gets stuck as if it's happening in the present. And then what people experience is they experience all of the body sensations of what was happening, but there's, it's not happening around them, you know? So if you got frozen and you were stuck in a small space, you'll feel really tight, you'll feel really small, you'll feel really stuck. Um, if you were really frightened or you were really angry, you might have those body sensations show up for you mm. um, and they'll be very easily triggered. And so there's the body responses and there's also things that happen in your brain, right? So we start to have certain beliefs about ourselves or others or the world that feel super true um, and that keep us from engaging with people and engaging with life. Mm -hmm. So that's PTSD, right? Complex PTSD is for those folks who grew up in environments where they were chronically unsafe or where there was chronic violence, instability, and their needs weren't being met. Mm -hmm. So that means there wasn't one accident that happened. There wasn't one bad fight that happened. It was constant every day, all the time for years while they were, while their brain and body was developing. Mm -hmm. And so what happens with that, a lot of times in order to survive that, what kids need to do is dissociate. They need to disconnect from their body. They yeah. cannot experience that. And I heard someone, uh, one of my professors say once, and it just really stuck out to me that, you know, like, thank God that kids have dissociation. Like it is a good thing that they are able to not be there for some of that stuff. Yes. Um, and so it's a survival technique. But the complication is, is that then when you become an adult and you're responsible for caring for your own body and brain, uh, it can be really hard to understand what your body needs. Mm -hmm. The other thing that happens is that your body can feel very unsafe, right? Like you don't even want to feel what's in your body because yes. maybe your body is where the bad thing happened to you. Mm -hmm. A lot of times that's the case. Um, and so you disconnect from the body. Um, you don't want to be there. So you disconnect from your hunger cues. Mm -hmm. You disconnect from your fullness cues. Um, and sometimes you start to use eating disorder behaviors like restriction and binging and purging and over-exercising to numb out, mm -hmm. right? So that you don't have to feel anything at all. Um, and it's interesting because like, you know, you might've seen some of this, but there's some research about the ways that restriction and binging can actually yeah. light up the brain and numb you out, right? And regulate you. Mm -hmm. um, it is, I always come from a place of this is a survival mechanism, right? Like this helped you get through things. Right. Um, but the problem becomes when those things are over and you're quote unquote safe, even if it doesn't feel that way, um, they, those stick around, right? Because mm -hmm. your body still thinks the bad stuff's happening. Um, and so that's why I think we see so much correlation between complex PTSD and a tricky relationship with food because mm -hmm. it becomes very difficult to sometimes want to care for your body, very difficult to understand what's happening in your body. Um, and you're using these behaviors that really harm your body uh, in order to feel regulated and okay and like mm -hmm. survive. And the hard thing about it is that, you, you know, pretty much all the time you're going to feel worse before you feel better, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and that's one of the huge barriers is you have to be able and willing and have the courage and support necessary to like feel that stuff and not numb it out. Yes. And it is very intense. Um, yes. And so there's just such a correlation between those two things, you know, all of mm -hmm. the complex PTSD um, and eating disorder. That's how I, I see it. I totally agree. I see that all the time in my practice too. Mm -hmm. It's interesting on top of the regulation piece, which 
A hundred percent. Eating disorder regulate us in the short term. They're not safe for the long term, but mm-hmm. they have a protective function. Mm. Um, and then there's also I've seen this layer of like if the body is was the site of the trauma, sometimes there's this deep desire to make the body so different from how it was mm-hmm. when the trauma happened. And a lot of times mm-hmm. that's size and shape. And mm-hmm. so again, these like really protective functions. And then you're right. When we start peeling back the eating disorder behaviors, it's, it just kind of all comes out. You open this big mm-hmm. can of worms and, and then people think, oh, I must be doing this wrong because this feels mm-hmm. terrible. Oh, yes. <laughs> so yes. What do you do when you, when, when you get to that stage with clients, how do you help them find safety in their body while mm-hmm. taking away eating disorder behaviors? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, you know, the very first thing that I'm focusing on with people is building. Well, the very first thing I focus on with people is building a sense of safety and security with me, right? Like in our connection with each other, because, you know, um, what the research shows makes therapy work. Isn't your technique. It's not your training. It's not how long you've been in therapy or been a therapist. It is how safe and comfortable your clients feel with you, Mm -hmm. right? So if you like and trust your therapist, you're probably getting good therapy, like honestly. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, so that's the very number one priority is make sure that we have all the time and space we need for their body and brain to feel really comfortable and safe with me. Mm -hmm. And I do not want to rush this process. Um, I am a person, a lot of my clients are with me pretty long-term, like Mm -hmm. a year or more. Mm -hmm. And I find that that is just necessary for most Mm -hmm. trauma work and especially for complex trauma because your, their brain and body has to have the learned experience of Summer's a safe person. I can predict how she's going to respond when I say things. Mm -hmm. I can test boundaries a little bit and see what happens when I do different stuff. How will she act? Um, and that's just necessary. So we start by making a sense of safety between the two of us. Um, co-regulation, like, yes, that's how our nervous system heals is in relationships. Mm -hmm. So yeah, without that, I was actually just talking to someone about this, about how like coping skills are not going to work if we don't have safe people in our life to regulate. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Oh my God. Yes. I find myself, Allison, like so frustrated with people being like, oh, here's some coping skills. Here's a worksheet Uh, on the coping skills. Like, oh, have you tried your coping skills? When people say that to me, I get so annoyed. I'm like, Mm -hmm. and I don't say that to my clients Mm -hmm. because honestly, people usually know what makes them feel better. Mm -hmm. And they usually are able to do that on their own. Um, And they don't need to just be like, okay, let me try this stuff that's not resonating at all. And just like hold the back for a while or whatever, you know? (laughs) Um, It's, yeah, I'm like, it's about like finding, you know, not only do like I prioritize making stuff connection between me and them in the beginning, but I'm also like, who's on your team? Like, who's mm-hmm. your supports, right? Like, is it your boyfriend? Is it your partner? Is it your parent? Is it your friend? Is it, you know, your pet. coach, mm-hmm. your pets, right? Mm-hmm. Like, who is, is it a spiritual figure? Like, mm-hmm. who is on your team? And you need to have that team with you in order to do this work. Um, so I love that you said that, you know, and it's mm-hmm. so interesting, because like, I find myself, you know, as we, with people with curious minds, right? Like we start to learn like the lingo and the science and like co-regulation and the nervous system. Um, and it all comes, it all starts to click. But I find that even if people don't have that background, we all sort of can intuitively understand that we feel best when we're connecting and yeah. with a person who is calm and present and compassionate and patient. Mm-hmm. That is when we start to feel better, you know? Okay. Um, so it's fun to have the science behind it. And it's also really cool because I think clients don't always need the science. Like no. we can intuitively understand what's happening, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And that's why like pushing coping skills just doesn't Ooh. work. Because <laughs> 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 no, 
more than anything, what I've noticed with my clients with complex trauma is they really want you to be in the trench, in the trenches with them, kind of a witness to their pain and a safe person to help contain it, to not feel so alone, because that's what makes the symptoms so much worse is the feeling of like isolation and shame. And yeah, of course we can't regulate in isolation and shame. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I, I think it makes me think about um, kind of going back a little bit to something we were just talking about, um, like the function of eating disorder behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things I will often see in folks is this belief that if I can control my body's shape and size, I can control how other people will treat me. I can yes. control whether or not I will be cared for and loved, aka safe, right? Yeah. Um, and there is, I see in my, so many of my clients, so much fear of letting go of the idea that you can control how other people feel about you and treat you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a belief, and I think this is where diet culture comes in, like diet culture sells us this belief, like literally sells it to us and markets it to us and tries to get our money and tries to get our investments yep. for it. If your body looks like this, you'll be liked, you'll be successful, you'll be happy, uh, you'll be adored, you'll be considered special, you'll be taken care of. And for people who have complex trauma, what could be more enticing and exactly. appealing than that? It's like, that's safety, that's love, that's connection. That's what I didn't get when I needed it. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's where my anger comes in. I get so angry at some of the industries that are just taking advantage of people who have been harmed so deeply um, mm-hmm. just to make money off them and, and literally hurt their bodies. Mm-hmm. Oof, it makes me so mad, but it makes sense too why it's appealing to people, you right. know? Um, and I think, it, and why that's what they need from us. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I think one of my favorite recovery models is like learning to turn to safe people, not food, mm. um, or not trying to control our body because yeah, of course we're sold this idea from society that that's, what's going to get us love, but that's not mm-hmm. the secure functioning love that we are wired for. That's mm-hmm. superficial validation, but mm-hmm. not that true soul connecting love we really need. Yes. And I think if, if you haven't experienced that soul connecting, compassionate, patient, present love, you're going to be convinced that validation is love, right? Like, Oh, that's what love is. It's when people say, Oh my God, you look amazing. Or when Mm -hmm. they like your photos, Instagram, or, you know, all that other stuff, you know, that that's must be what love is. Um, And that's why I think having, sometimes I'll tell people like therapy isn't about getting skill. I mean, we do skills and tools and we do all that. It's important foundational stuff, but the real therapy is having an experience mm-hmm. where you feel a difference where your body and brain experience something with somebody who's calm, compassionate, safe, kind, patient, mm-hmm. because then you're like, Oh, this is what it's going to feel like when somebody cares about me. Exactly. You know? And that's where the healing happens. And I think Mm -hmm. for therapists too, it really helps us show up more authentically because Mm -hmm. when we know, when we know that it's not about skills or trainings, it's really about our connection. It does relieve the pressure of like having to do some like deep, mysterious intervention all the time. Right. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And like, don't get me wrong. Like I love some good you know, evidence-based interventions and stuff like that. And that's an important part of what we do, but I would say it's like 20% of what I do, you know? Um, And the the other percent is I'm just going to show up. And I always ask what's on your mind today that you want to think about to get Mm -hmm. together, you know? Um, And just like, see, just like let them lead and be present, you know? Um, And (sighs) it's totally 20%, right? Because I know you use EMDR and we're going to get into that and Mm -hmm. IFS, right? And Mm -hmm. I use IFS 
but I try to ask clients, like, mm-hmm. do you want to do some IFS with that? You want to explore yes. that part or do you want to just talk about it? And there's mm-hmm. many times where clients just want to talk about it. And then there's other times where, yeah, I think that parts work would be helpful, but it's interesting to notice what people are more drawn to, right? Yes. And what a beautiful example of giving people choice, right? I'll sometimes say to people like the opposite of trauma is choice. Mm -hmm. Trauma is when you have no choice and you're, again, I use these words like helpless and trapped, right? And so when we are able to offer clients choices, I feel like that is just so foundational to trauma-informed therapy. Mm -hmm. It's not saying, okay, today we're going to do EMDR because that's what's going to heal you. Oh my God, never, never. Oh my God. (laughs) You know, Um, it's, here's an option. Let me explain it to you how it works. If you want to, like, I have some YouTube videos of of watching, you can watch people do it. Like, what do you Mm -hmm. think about this? Are you interested? We can try it. If you don't like it, we don't have to do it again. You know? Um, Mm -hmm. And what I find is when I approach, you know, techniques like EMDR and IFS with that lens, then um, when clients do resonate and when it does resonate with them and they are interested, then it works so beautifully and it's so cool. And I also, nobody has to have that experience. And I know there are probably people maybe listening to this podcast who have had an experience of their therapist telling them they had to do some kind of trauma therapy or Mm -hmm. talk about what happened before they were ready and they didn't want to, and they just feel worse and they get really dysregulated and it disrupts the relationship. And then they go to their therapist and then it's terrible, (laughs) you know? Um, So it's like choice, dude, you've got to have that choice available for them. Exactly. And it might take a long time before they're ready Mm -hmm. to go there. And that's Mm -hmm. okay. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about how EMDR um, can help with this and a little bit about the process? Sure. So like I said a little earlier, um, well, let me start here. So EMDR is a trauma reprocessing therapy, which means that it works with the brain and the body to help process the memories of what happened and store them correctly. So I talked earlier about the way that Trauma interrupts our our brain's ability to process what's happening to us. Mm-hmm. What EMDR does is we provide what's called dual attention. So you have part of your attention on the traumatic memory and part of your attention in the present with me, either in the room or in the virtual space, right? Yeah. Um, and you are able to kind of bounce between those to feel safe and grounded and connected while you look at what happened to you um, without you know, any of those protective mechanisms you might've had to use before. And you're just really looking at it and feeling it and engaging with it. Um, And what we find that does is it allows the brain to be in a calm enough place to actually reprocess and store that memory correctly, Mm. which is what leads to seeing changes in the way your body, your body reacts to things that might've triggered you before. It leads to changes in the way you think about yourself and others and the world. Um, And it just gives you options to start living life in a way where you're not necessarily having to avoid reminders of what it was that happened. Um, That makes so much sense. Cause yeah, yeah. like we were talking about in the beginning, it it makes us feel like we're currently reliving it. Or if Mm -hmm. we see a trigger, it feels like it's happening all over again. But if Mm -hmm. we can VR, put that memory in the past Mm -hmm. and find like safety in that. So I I guess I'm just relating my experience Mm -hmm. because I'm a therapist that goes to therapy and I'm not Woo-hoo! ashamed and um, <laughs> I've done my own EMDR on the other side of it. And it really does like, it doesn't like take away the memory, but it helps the charge go down a little bit and it helps mm-hmm. you kind of put it more in the past and kind of broadens your perspective. Yes. Yes. Right. Like you can look at it and be like, you know, you're not going to forget what happened. Right. You're going to say, yeah, it was really, you know, what I hear clients say sometimes is, yeah, you know, it's horrible that that happened. It's so sad that that happened, but it's over now. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, 
And oh, I just love when I hear those words because it means that now this experience can be integrated into their story, into making meaning for what their life is and what matters to them. Um, and it's not taking over everything about their day to day, you know? Mm -hmm. Totally. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, um, tell us a little bit about like, what is it like to do trauma and eating disorder work concurrently? Do you usually find like you do them at the same time or one before mm -hmm. the other? I get that mm -hmm. question a lot from clients mm -hmm. and a lot of clients that want to do the trauma right away, but then yeah. maybe they're not medically stable. And so yep. it's really tricky. It's so tricky. And I think, you know, the medical complications of eating disorders are what made my professors back in the day be so intimidated and afraid, yeah. you know? Um, and this is where I think that a team approach is just like non-negotiable for me when I'm working yes. with eating disorders. I'm like, if you're wanna work with me on your eating disorder, I can't wait, that's gonna be great. I'm really looking forward to supporting you and you're gonna need a dietitian. You're gonna mm -hmm. need a doctor at the bare minimum, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, and I need to have release of information so I can talk to them and we need to all be working together on what's going on yeah. for you. Um, because as therapists, we cannot do all of those things that people no. need at the same time, right? I have one role, my role is to provide a safe place to process what's happening for them, to be that like attachment figure, mm -hmm. like the you know, therapy land words, but like yeah. that safe person for you to figure out and like process what's going on for you. Um, and then sometimes your dietitian, their job is to be like, no, like you, this is what you need to be doing. And mm -hmm. they have to be a little more directive, right? Um, the doctor has to be a little more directive. Um, and they might not be that like safe person in the same way. And I know a lot of my clients are like, yeah. don't like their dietitian. And I have, <laughs> you know, it's like a whole thing. I get it, you know, um, but, uh, you know, that's why we have to work with a team, right? Yeah. Because I don't think it's very helpful to do trauma work when we're not medically stable, mm -hmm. um, because there, you know, there's some evidence of what sometimes I'll talk about like EMDR is actually like, very physically draining. Like, I don't know if yeah. you had that experience, but at the end of a session, oh gosh, yes. people are tired, you know? Um, I would get and headaches. I was, yes, headaches, they're tired. Um, and it's because when your brain is working, you're actually like working, you know, mm -hmm. it's an organ, it needs energy. Yes. <laughs> and so if we don't have a lot of energy in our body, it's really hard to use our brain to the full capacity. Mm -hmm. So I find that, you know, we can try trauma work when folks are not medically stable. Um, and there's some points, if you've kind of gotten to a point where you're getting enough energy in your body now, maybe you're working on weight restoration or something like that. Um, it starts to get a little bit easier. Um, but in the very early days of recovery for some of those folks, like trauma work is not what we need to be doing. We mm -hmm. need to do stabilization and safety and stuff like that, which can be frustrating for people. Right. Mm -hmm. And I totally get it. And I'm like, I don't want to put you through something that's going to be really challenging and dysregulating and upsetting. And it's not even going to work. Like, right. I don't want to do that. Um, so after folks have, you know, achieved that medical stability and they've got their team and they're able to, you know, work towards their meal plan and stuff like that. Um, then I think that doing both eating disorder work and trauma work at the same time is mm -hmm. how I like to do it. So again, I take a very client-centered approach. What's on your mind today? What would you like? Is there anything that you definitely want to think about together? Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll come with this thing that happened with food and or their body or, you know, body checking or something. And other times they'll be like, no, I'm not really sure. You know, I don't know. And then I'll say, okay, well, what if we look at this together today then, mm -hmm. you know, and I'll bring in that trauma work. Um, 
we can't wait for the eating disorder to be healed before we start the trauma work because that's not mm -hmm. how it works, right? Like right. the eating disorder exists because of. <laughs> because of, as a function of protecting you from that trauma, right? Mm -hmm. um, we also can't wait for the trauma to be healed before addressing the eating disorder because of the medical implications, right? Mm -hmm. And because you need the energy and you need the focus, mm -hmm. you know, to be able to do trauma work. So we have to do them together. But you know, so it kind of depends on how clients show up. Um, and sometimes after they do an assessment with a dietitian and a doctor and they're cleared, I'm like, okay, we can jump in right now. And other times it's like, nah, dude, we're going to take it a little slow. Mm -hmm. Okay. We're going to make sure that your brain and body have the energy that they need to do this work. Um, yeah. and make sure also that you have the skills that you need to keep yourself safe in between sessions, right? right? Because trauma work is very hard. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. very hard. And um, again, it's really normal to feel kind of worse before you feel better. And if what you're feeling right now is leading to you doing things, is leading your brain and body to feel that the best way to keep you safe is to do things that long-term aren't very safe. I, it just feels, I don't want to mess around with that. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm like, your safety is number one thing to me. So we need to make sure you got other options on how to care for yourself, other supports, mm -hmm. um, before we do the trauma work. The exception to this, I would say, is when I worked in a residential setting and a PHP setting, I think you have a little more flexibility um, to push in those mm -hmm. settings because there's a level of safety that's ensured because you're being monitored all the time. Right. It's super hard and it's not very pleasant, um, but I think in those settings, you have more freedom to start with the trauma work, even when folks aren't very stable mm -hmm. or safely, you know, stabilized medically. Um, but when, you know, as an outpatient therapist at this point, it's not something that I do. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like we operate pretty similarly because yeah? I definitely, it's, yeah, it's like you, they have, it's, I don't ever expect a client to be in this perfectly stable place of recovery before mm -hmm. we do trauma work, but mm -hmm. nourished enough. Right. And like you Love said, that. per the dietitian, per the doctor, and then we start to work on trauma work slowly and kind of see like, okay, in between sessions, are you able to cope? Are you able to continue following your meal plan and stuff? And mm -hmm. if I start to see a regression, then we might kind of pause trauma work and go back. Mm -hmm. So it's really this kind of dance. <laughs> yes. And that's where, you know, there's a lot of science that we can learn about that we can apply to therapy, but therapy's not a science, you know? Mm -hmm. You can't be like, okay, step A, step B, step C, and yeah. now you're it, it will never ever work like that. No. You know? <laughs> that's why I'm not at all intimidated by these like apps and the AI and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm like, I sure I'm sure it helps some folks, and that's great. If anything, like that's awesome. But it's not, that's no. not how healing happens. <laughs> you can't co-regulate with a, with a mm. robot. <laughs> so maybe, you know, when we're talking about finding safety in body, yeah. in our bodies, can you share with listeners, maybe just some practical tips that people can feel safer in their bodies right now? Absolutely. Yeah. I love this stuff. Um, okay. So I have a lot of things that I do for this, like a lot okay. of things. So I'm going to go through a list. Yeah. Um, okay. So I think one of the first things I like to encourage folks to do is to create a space in their home or maybe in your car, if you don't have a space in your home or, you know, in a park, I don't know, anywhere you've got access to where you have a little bit of control over that environment, um, create a space where your body can feel as safe as is feasible at that time mm -hmm. for you. Right. Um, so even if it's a corner, if it's a whole room, um, I want folks to just like put all kinds of things that make them feel really good there. I want you to have, if possible, a door with a lock on it, right? So you can mm -hmm. close it, you can lock it and you can know I'm in here by myself. I'm going to be safe. 
um, things that I like to have, you know, there's something um, in the trauma world that we call glimmers, which are the opposite of triggers, right? Yeah. So there are signals to our brain and body that we're safe and we're calm and we can relax. And so I want to flood your area with that stuff. You know, like for mm -hmm. me, I love candles. Um, I love books. I love soft lighting. I love um, pretty mugs, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, and my dog who I'm obsessed with, right? Like these are things that tell my brain we're safe, we're calm, we're relaxed, we can we can relax, right? Yeah. Um, and so creating a safe place for yourself, even if it's just a corner or it's like the back of your car or whatever you got, I think is really essential because then you have a retreat where you can go when you are upset and frustrated and overwhelmed and dysregulated to start to train your brain like oh when i'm here i can calm down right yeah absolutely back when i was in person like ideally my office would be one of those spaces right mm -hmm. now it's virtual so it's kind of on my clients to make sure that they do that for themselves mm -hmm. and that's some of the things that we'll talk about um so creating a safe place and knowing what your glimmers are and just like flooding that with all of that stuff mm -hmm. um other things i like there's something that we call pendulation and that basically means that you're going to find a part of your body that feels either neutral or pleasant. Okay. Um, so you might find like the my hands feel relaxed right now or mm -hmm. my legs feel relaxed or my core. And then you find the part of the body that's not feeling good. Right. Mm -hmm. That's like my heart center is is stressed and tight and tense. Um, and so what we'll do, and this is sort of similar to what we do with EMDR, that dual attention, right, is we'll place our attention on the part that's uncomfortable. And then we'll intentionally move our attention to the part of the body that feels better, right? Or even just okay. neutral. So we'll go, okay, so I'm focusing on the heart. Oh, it feels this way. And now I'm moving my attention to my hands and I'm taking a breath while I'm there because I can notice that it's a little more relaxed. Mm -hmm. And then, okay, I'm going to come back to the heart and check in with how that's feeling. Ooh, it's tight. It's tense. My breathing's slowing. Okay, we're going back to the hands. And you mm -hmm. can kind of like find the spot in the body that feels good and go back and forth between them. Um, and you can do some like own your own like, self-touch like you know like touching your hands together or doing giving yourself a massage um like things like hug. that that can yes the hug i always tell people i know it sounds weird but put your hands in your armpits to hug yourself because you get yeah. such a better squeeze <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of stuff so like physical touch with yourself that feels really good and calm sometimes that is a safe way to approach that kind of stuff mm -hmm. um that kind of connects with the other thing I was going to talk about, which is pleasure practices, like finding what feels good and giving yourself permission to fully experience and enjoy mm -hmm. it. Um, so a lot of times I tell people like put in headphones and like ideally noise blocking and put on a song that you just love and you don't have to move if you don't want to, but a lot of times your body will want to, right? And like mm -hmm. give yourself permission to move with that song. Um, food can be a wonderful way to pr practice pleasure. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I'll do that with folks in session, especially if we're still working on that relationship with food. Um, but finding foods that make you feel really good. Mm -hmm. If you have people in your life, those safe people we've talked about, you know, long hugs and cuddles and holding hands and just like noticing the warmth of that person is a beautiful mm -hmm. pleasure practice. Um, Even imagining those safe people. Right? Yes, that, yes, exactly. Our brain doesn't always know the difference between reality mm -hmm. and imagination. So like I'll yeah. tell my clients, let's picture like three safe people. This could be including us as therapists. Mm -hmm. One of my safe people is my therapist. And yep envision them just like surrounding you and you can feel their energy and it's it really does help that feeling of safety oh my god that's literally an emdr technique where we um it's like the circle of resources or something like that okay. um and you'll have you know i'll work i'll have clients like focus on imagine all these people around you i'll have them like tell me some details about them so i can feed it to them while we're doing it like oh and they're you know standing next to you and they're saying this um that can be a beautiful way of doing it 
Um, a couple other things I do for um, helping clients to feel safer in their bodies. One thing I love to do is to recommend folks to make like a grounding box or bag, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, and that's where you have something that you keep full of stuff that helps you to stay present when you start to dissociate. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you can have like crystals or like things that are more pointy. I always, I was going to emphasize people can't yeah. see it, but I bring this up. I'm like, it's pointy. It like, grabs your attention. Um, fidget toys, soft things, can't like scented stuff like perfumes and oils um strong tasting stuff so like mints and mm -hmm. spicy candies sour gummies and sour gummies you know um things that are going to help you to stop from dissociating like keeping them all in one place because sometimes what i'll tell people is when we don't feel safe in our body and when we are slightly dissociated um, we don't have full access to our prefrontal cortex yeah. anymore, right? So we can't like make logical choices and just like our executive functioning is like out the window. Like mm -hmm. we're not going to be able to be like step one, two, three to make this happen. So I need you to like prep it so that when that happens, you don't even have to think. You just open the box and just intuitively go to what you yes. need at that moment. Um, yeah. So those are just a few things. <laughs> yeah, those are great. I love learning these techniques. And um, I'm curious too, like, so we talked about dissociating, but like with flashbacks, do you find that mm -hmm. coming back to that felt sense of safety is helpful or what do you normally do for flashbacks? Yeah. Um, flashbacks are so painful to experience. They're yeah. horrible. Um, and I think one of the worst parts of you know, one of the worst trauma symptoms because mm. it's just like, oh, it's happening again right now, you know, right. very viscerally. Um, and so again, if you've got a safe person, I think that is your number one best way to address a flashback mm -hmm. is to have someone who, you know, and sometimes I'll have clients bring their spouse or their partner or their friend to session, and we'll kind of talk about what they can do to be supportive of them when that's happening, you know, tone of voice, what you can say, what you don't say, you know, mm -hmm. um, things like that. So you know, bringing in a safe person to just help you get through that bad moment yeah. is a really helpful thing. And maybe like take your hand when you're ready, do a little physical touch, because that's very much like in the present, right? Yeah. Um, get you back into your body now. Um, the grounding box for flashbacks, right? Like after one of the things I kind of think about is like, when you're in a flashback, you have to be able to come down just enough yeah. to be able to access some of the other stuff. Like right. you're, if you're in a flashback, me being like, here, smell this oil is right. not going to do anything <laughs> for you. And, you know, it's just not. So it's about like some of those more physical things that bring you down just enough that you can start using some of those coping skills that we right. don't love that word, but it's true. <laughs> you need them um, to get you more grounded and present. Mm -hmm. um, so other people are my top choice. If we don't have that movement is huge because it gets blood flowing and helps your brain be more engaged with the present. Um, and this is something that I always find a little tricky with eating disorder clients is like how much movement is safe for their bodies at that time and what's yeah. medically appropriate. Um, but if it is medically appropriate, more intensive movement is really helpful. It's like jumping up and down or like jumping jacks or push-ups if you're into that or uh, like going running. Like when I was first reckoning with what was happening in my own body and brain and dealing with what was, what had happened for me, um, I'm not a runner anymore, but I did a lot of running at that time because mm -hmm. I, I think I had to engage that flight response, you know, yeah. and it just helped my brain feel like, okay, this is better. Like we can, we can move, we can get out of this situation. Um, mm -hmm. But if flashbacks so are really right, like if flashbacks are a really primary symptom that's happening, that for me feels like a sign that like trauma therapy and reprocessing therapy is like something I want to do more quickly and prioritize right. because they are just so destabilizing and dysregulating and horrible. Um, that I mean, lots of things about trauma are, but those are just so particularly intense mm -hmm. and awful. Um, that I love to just see, you know, even if we just take the edge off enough of the trauma that that's not happening anymore. Yeah. Um, 
oh, other things I think about is like really knowing your triggers, mm-hmm. you know, and then having a plan for, you know, sometimes even though avoidance is one of the symptoms of PTSD, it's helpful at the beginning. Yeah. And like, you should not be putting yourself in situations that are going to trigger you when yeah. you're not ready for that. So knowing where to not go and where to go, um, having an exit plan, if you do get triggered, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that. So true. You know, what's interesting too, with flashbacks, Mm. and Mm -hmm. I'm so curious to hear your thoughts is that Mm -hmm. I've recently been using like an IFS lens with it and seeing the flashback Mm. as a part. Mm -hmm. And what some of my clients have discovered is that this flashback part really wants us to to know something. It's like, it's like a child that just like, can't wait any longer. And it's like, I need you to get this. You've been abandoning it so long. And so then we'll start talking it like, we'll ask it to kind of step back and give us space and try mm-hmm. to let it be heard without it taking over, mm-hmm. which is so fascinating, right? Because I don't know, it just fascinates me every time that like, if we can just see these things as parts, these symptoms as like mm-hmm. a protective function, then mm-hmm. we can build a relationship with it and it doesn't need to take over so much. Mm-hmm. I love that, Alison. I love that, right? Yeah. Like building a relationship with the parts of us that are overwhelmed and scared and hurting, you know, to the point where they feel like, oh, I don't have to scream to get your attention. Yeah. I can just like gently tap you on the shoulder and you'll hear it and you'll look over and be like, oh my God, what do you need? Let me help you right now. You're my number one priority. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, Oh, I just love that kind of work so much. Me too. I agree. (laughs) Yeah. So lately, like with some clients, we've been just like talking about the details of their flashbacks. Like if this part really wants to be heard, let's witness it. Because I usually know that there's a lot of avoidance wrapped up in that person's Mm. daily life, you know, to where this part is just becoming so Mm. overwhelmed and just ready to burst. Yeah. And you know what? It makes me think a little bit about the function of um, like storytelling and trauma healing. And something I've been reflecting on a lot, and we probably don't have all the time to get into it right now, but I've been thinking a lot about the ways that different cultures and societies throughout history have addressed trauma because you know this is not the trauma has always existed if anything like it's probably was way worse in the past because we didn't even have like basic medicine right like right dying all the time um and I think about the ways that other cultures have and throughout history have addressed trauma and I think storytelling is one of Mm -hmm. those like primary things and witnessing your story right um it's one of the ways that our brains and bodies are like wired to heal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the cool thing about IFS, like witnessing is there's a storytelling aspect to that. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think so many types of trauma therapy integrate that maybe towards the end after the intensity has dropped a bit, yeah. um, where you get to just tell the story and be like, this is what happened to me. And you can see the way it impacts other people and really feel the respect mm-hmm. for the intensity of what you experienced. Right. Um, and that is just like a really, really, I think, innately healing thing for human mm-hmm. beings. I agree. I think a lot too. And I think we, I kind of messaged you on Instagram about this, but yeah. like <laughs> how ancient cultures, yeah, cultures have been doing trauma therapy mm-hmm. for so long before there was EMDR, yeah. before there was mm-hmm. IMF. Right. Before psychology existed. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Psychology really hijacked and appropriated a lot of these practices. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But if we go back to those roots, yeah, there's always like a storytelling piece. There's like a community mm-hmm. breathing piece. There's mm-hmm. like singing, dancing, chanting. A like somatic all- piece, right? Yeah. Like the body is moving. We're making yes. music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. And so I find too that like a really big part of trauma work is helping people find 
joy and pleasure in their bodies, but also just yeah. in their life with like dance or art or whatever mm-hmm. it is. But mm-hmm. I find that to be a really key component too. Yes. And I love using creative expression and art with clients. Once we get mm-hmm. to that storytelling piece, um, it's just like such a way, one, one of my favorite things when I worked in treatment was I would run this painting group um, and the rules were my like teacher self came out and I like was, yeah. was like, no, we've got rules, but um, you can't, we weren't allowed to talk. We didn't speak. And I would put on like some lo-fi or some nice mm-hmm. like music in the background and I wouldn't give any prompts. I would just put out all the colors and the paint and say, we're going to be in here for an hour. You don't have to make anything you don't want to. If you feel like it, just choose a color that you want to start with and just do something. Mm-hmm. And people would leave that group and I would leave that group just feeling calm and grounded. A lot of times we do it right before a meal, you know, cause we yeah. go to the meal and we'd be coming in like grounded and calm and like ready to take it on. Um, and like, oh my God, I miss that so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was such beautiful work. Um, and I sort of simulated a little bit on Zoom sometimes now <laughs> where mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, you set up your paints, I'll set up mine. We'll put on some yeah. music together we'll do it. Um, but yeah, I, I have think, clients that love to do just like crafts while we're talking, you know, yes. and, getting the hands moving, the body moving. Mm-hmm. It is. And it's also, there's a piece of dual attention, right? Like you yeah. can pendulate between what you're doing with your hands and what's happening in your brain. Mm-hmm. And that is so helpful. Yeah. It's like our body and we're wired already to know what we need. I feel yes. like EMDR, IFS, wonderful frameworks, but yes. our body is like, when we have that secure base, we know what we need, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's like, I feel so strongly that a client led approach where I, I always am going to have ideas about what to do during that yeah. session, right? I'm going to have some stuff. I'm going to like ready to do if you've got nothing, but like, I like, it is my number one priority that they tell me what they want for that day, mm-hmm. you know, because I trust that their body and brain knows what they need more than I could ever guess. You know what I mean? Exactly. Absolutely. Oh, this is such a good conversation summer. Thank you so Ooh. much for sharing your wisdom with us. Oh my God. It was so good to talk to you about this. I love talking to other eating disorder therapists and trauma therapists. And like, I just, you know, my curious friend, I like love talking about this stuff. Me too. So thank you it's for very, having me. Yeah. It's so <laughs> energizing. I love these conversations too. Mm-hmm. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about your work? Cool. I am at, I'm on Instagram at summer, the therapist, just put a period between each of those words. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can also find me, I have a website, summer for Lenza. Um, maybe we'll link it or something probably. Yes. Um, <laughs> and people can find me there. Um, but Instagram's a great place. I respond to all my comments and try to get on my DMs. So hit me up. Like I like to do um, Q and A's on there as well, and let people ask mm-hmm. questions um, because I'm just such a big believer that knowledge is power, and like I want to spread the knowledge I have to empower other people.